if you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, if you are new, welcome. Um, we have been studying or trying to study and understand um, the interesting book that is Ecclesiastes, one of the wisdom literatures. Um, I don't know about you, but it's been <laughs> quite challenging for me in so many ways. But I think definitely it's been a huge encouragement for me and I'm sure for you as well. This week, we're still in chapter 3. Um, and we are going to be, this week, looking at the topics of justice, judgment day, death, and everything else related. Who's ready? Are you sure? Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's read um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, and we're going to read to verse 22. Yeah? Yeah? Guys ready? You can talk back to me, you know. <laughs> I love it. Let's read. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? I think we need to pray. God, thank you so much. That even though every time we approach, every time we approach a passage in your scriptures um, and in places that um, seem complex and hard to understand, um, we trust that you have not left us to our own intellect to understand it, but you have provided us with your spirit. Um, so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us understanding beyond what we've read and beyond what we can figure out and beyond even what I say. Um, I have done my best to prepare, to help us understand, but that's never enough. Um, we need you, and so may you do what I can never do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, this week, I got invited um, to give a little talk um, at Kiwanis in Pacific Beach. Who's heard of Kiwanis? Some of you have, yes. 
Um, I'm affiliated with Kawani's and I got invited to just share a little bit about what's going on in my personal life and what's going on in the church, King's Cross Church. Um, and so I talked about our kids being um, enlisted into school for the first time. What that means is for the first time um, in our lives, Eleanor and I have no kids at home. All of our kids are in school. I also talked about how our little baby, Eden, she's five years old, first time at school. She had a rough start to her school career, um, but she is doing way better now. She is doing way better. She walks in, doesn't cry, doesn't try to run away. Um, she walks straight in. And I also talked about what our church has been up to. And of course, I brought up the topic of Ecclesiastes. I said to them, our church has been in, um, studying this ancient book of Ecclesiastes. And have you heard of Ecclesiastes? Some of them had, but not all of them had. And so I went along to explain what Ecclesiastes is all about and how it's written by this kind of billionaire guy in the ancient world called Solomon, maybe. And... <laughs> We keep, I keep going back and forth of whether it's Solomon or not, but it doesn't matter. It's all about the content. And so I talked to them about that and how he, he went on this quest to discover the meaning of life and um, to find satisfaction in life, but he kept being left um, disappointed and dissatisfied with everything. And as I was sharing, um, they were all looking at me. Um, really engaged, and I was surprised <laughs> that they were. They were just looking at me really engaged, and um, I was amazed to really once again be reminded of how relevant Ecclesiastes is, okay? To think that this book was written like over 3,000 years ago and still speaks to us in San Diego in the 21st century now, it's just amazing. It's only something only God can do. Um, and so as I was sharing, and as I was sharing about Ecclesiastes, I noticed one thing, and that was, in my opinion, okay, in my opinion, the preacher or the tone of Ecclesiastes is not pessimistic like doom and gloom, life sucks, I'm not going to do anything. No, it's not that. But I also don't think it's idealistic, like it's kind of not in touch with reality. But I think if we're honest with ourselves and we look closely at Ecclesiastes, I think it's realistic. It's a realistic perspective on life. And so this morning, we are going to explore more of Ecclesiastes. And as we do, we're just going to go, man, like what he's saying is true, <laughs> right? It might be hard for us to stomach. It might be hard for us to believe and accept. But at the end of the day, we just have to put our hands up and go, you know what? He's a realist and what he's saying is true. From the very beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has been trying to get us to see that life here on earth is filled with frustration and disappointment, okay? And so what he does is he describes life as Havel. Everybody say Havel. 
Brilliant. That is like your favorite Hebrew word now, yeah? We've been going over and over and over again. But he describes life as Hevel. And Hevel is a Hebrew word that means vapor or smoke. Therefore, his perspective of life under the sun, that is a phrase that comes up over and over again, under the sun. And what under the sun basically means is um, anything in this world, okay? And so therefore, his perspective of life under the sun is that it's fleeting um, and it's also futile. It's short-lived and meaningless. This is because everything under the sun has been polluted ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin entered into the world. Um, everything in this world has been affected by sin and because of this it's fleeting and futile. Um, Alex, it's, it keeps messing with me. Is it okay? Okay, brilliant. One, two. Can you guys hear me? Yeah? Okay, cool. Thank you. And so after his exploration of life and everything, the preacher um, has arrived at the conclusion, this conclusion, and what we have to also remember is his conclusion of life being Hevel is not based on um, research and his own opinion. It's been based on experience, okay? In previous weeks, we looked at how the preacher had all the money in the world so therefore, he was able to experience life to the fullest, okay? And it was through this experience that he said, look, I've experienced everything in this world, um, but at the end of the day, I am still dissatisfied. And so, his conclusion of life being Hevel is based on what he has done and what he has seen. And in this part of the book, what we're about to study this morning, the preacher continues to help us see how broken and dysfunctional this world is. But the more we see this, the more Jesus becomes valuable. And so this morning, I just, I just want to look at three truths, okay? Three truths. And the first is this, justice through judgment. The second is humans die like animals. And the third is the death of death. Okay? So the first, let's look at the first, justice through judgment. Look at verse 16. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Justice is something we all want to see. Our desire for justice begins at a young age. Whenever you hear a kid say, it's not fair, what's happening there is that you are hearing them express disdain for injustice and a desire for justice. We live in an unjust world and we often ask ourselves this big question, is there any justice in this world? The preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, if you were to ask him, if, is there any justice in this world? This is how he'll probably respond. He'll probably say, Nope, I don't think there is. In verse 16, 
what he says is that wickedness exists in the place of justice and also in the place of righteousness. The preacher has been there and done that. He has lived life to the fullest. And one of the most troubling things he has seen in life is that unrighteousness exists even in places of righteousness. And injustice exists even in the places of justice. Um, one author said this, an absurdity of life is that where there ought to be justice in the law courts, there is often corruption, oppression, and a perversion of justice. What does this mean? Innocent people are sometimes convicted of crimes they did not commit. Hardly a day goes by without us hearing about authority figures involved in corruption scandals. When we look at the rich and the famous, all right, um, it seems that they get away with all sorts of evil just because they can afford the best attorney, um, the best defense alternatives. And so from police use of excessive force to separating children from parents at the border, injustice in the justice systems continue to gain media attention and spark public outrage. Injustice exists where it shouldn't, and this is why we continue to ask the question, is there any justice in the world? When will things be made right, we ask? When will ISIS pay for persecuting Christians and beheading innocent people? When will crooked politicians be exposed? When will sex traffickers get what they deserve? When will child abusers be found out and pay for their terrible actions against innocent children? Injustice continues to go unpunished. We all long for justice. We all long for what's wrong to be made right. We all long for the day when wickedness in the place of justice is corrected. And so the million dollar question is, when will that day come? When will things be made right for real? What can be done to cleanse our world of the blemish of injustice? What's the solution for injustice? And some people would say, hey, the solution is that we need to do more protests. Some people would say we need to sign more petitions. As long as we get more people to sign this petition, we will see justice in this world. Others believe if we get more Christians or more good people in positions of power, that's how we're going to see justice. While others believe hashtags are the most effective ways to deal with the problem of injustice. And I would say all these things are good. And I would say we should absolutely protest. We should sign petitions when available. We should support good causes. We should do all of us. But this is the reality that we're living in, okay? <laughs> this is the reality. These things haven't been enough to completely 
solve the problem of injustice, have they? No, why? Because injustice still exists and it still continues to be alive and well in our world. Daniel Aiken says this, um, unfortunately, even our very best efforts will not bring an end to all oppression. There will still be violence against women and children. Police officers will still get killed in the line of duty. There will be structures of corruption in business and government. Foreign powers will abuse their own people in defiance of world order. And so if protests and petitions and better leaders and the justice system cannot solve the problem of injustice, what can? Who or what will bring about justice in the world? The writer of Ecclesiastes has a fascinating answer to this question. Look how he answers this in verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, okay, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Last week, we looked at the well-known, famous poem of A Time for Everything. Um, and the preacher rightly helped us see that for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, okay? Um, he talked about how there was a time to be born and a time to die. He talked about how there's a time to weep and a time to dance. He talked about how there's a time for war and a time for peace. Now here, okay, in verse 17, after reminding us of the unfortunate reality of injustice, the preacher reminds us that if there a season, if there's a season for every um, matter under heaven, then there must be a time and a season for justice. In other words, we may be in a season where injustice is on a rampage, but there will come a time when injustice will finally be completely put to death and justice will reign. And the time he believes this will happen is when God executes judgment on the righteous and the wicked. In a nutshell, put simply, judgment day is when God will make things right and bring about ultimate justice. Judgment day? Some of you are like spooked out now, aren't you? Judgment Day. <laughs> Some of you are like, I have not heard about the Day of Judgment for a long time. You may have, but most of us haven't. Let's be honest, right? The topic of Judgment Day makes us uncomfortable. And whenever we talk about it, okay, Yes, it makes us uncomfortable, but when we do talk about it, what we like to do is kind of downplay it and deny it and think, look, the whole topic of Judgment Day is for that guy who's on that street corner holding a placard saying the end is nigh. Trevon Wax says this, many Christians talk a lot about justice and very little about judgment. Justice here and now is a popular subject. 
judgment there and then? Not so much. And he's absolutely right. Yes, we want to talk about justice. We want to pursue ways that we can bring about justice in this world. But if we only focus on justice without talking about judgment, we're missing out on something. Christians, all right, for us, we may downplay judgment day. But what's interesting is that our culture mocks judgment day. Um, it's just there's a lot of jokes out there. You know, as I was doing research, I typed in Judgment Day, kind of, you know, in, um, in Google, and, you know, some scary things came up, whatever. But within all of that were some comical stuff, really funny stuff about Judgment Day, and there's a lot of cartoon comics out there about Judgment Day, and one of the funniest was this. There's, like, this kind of picture of God being here and then a man and there's like, you know, speech marks and everything and God says to the man, what have you done in your life? Okay, and the man responds, didn't you read my tweets? You know, <laughs> it's just one of those things where it's kind of comical. But according to the Bible, God has promised a day when his son Jesus Christ will judge all mankind. Trevin Wax says this again, references to a coming day of judgment span the whole Bible. The prophets warn of it, the righteous long for it, and the psalmists celebrate it. One cannot understand the overarching story of the Bible without giving attention to the coming day of the Lord. And so judgment day um, the day when God will make things right and bring about ultimate justice is a future reality we cannot escape. Um, it's part of our destiny. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 3 says this, that, uh, says this uh, um, about the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like, and the day of the Lord is referring to judgment day. It's another um, way of saying judgment day. The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. There's so much in this passage about judgment day. It's talking about no one knows when it's going to happen. Okay? It's also talking about it's going to come suddenly, right? Like a pregnant woman who's in labor. And so there's so much here, but the day of the Lord is coming. Justice will have the final word. And the most important thing for us is as we wait, this is what we need to do. We need to live in light of this great day. And as we do that, I want us as a church to actively pursue justice. Um, I want us to share the good news of Jesus with compassion and enthusiasm, knowing that any day now, any day now, Jesus could return and judge the world for his glory. So judgment day is a thing. It's in scripture and it's going to happen. And I am just a messenger. 
First, we looked at just justice through judgment. Next, we'll look at how humans die like animals. Okay, look at verse 18. Um, Alex, can you turn me up a bit? Thank you. I can't. Thank you. Verse 18 says, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Um, what does this mean? So I'm using the ESV version here, um, but in some of your other translations of the Bible, the NIV or whatever translation, you've probably got instead of beasts, it's animals. And so we're going to go with animals for now. Um, and so moving on also, when we look at the idea of God testing us, um, this has nothing to do with our academic abilities, okay? So when it talks about God testing um, humankind, it's not about grades or anything like that. It's more of a diagnosis to help us understand who we really are. Derek Kidner, who has an amazing commentary on Ecclesiastes, says this, our present existence is, is, a, is a proven ground. It is a test, not simply in the sense of something we pass or fail, but also in the sense of something that demonstrates our true character. And this test or diagnosis, right, that he's talking about, helps us see who we really are and who we really are and what God wants us to see, right, is that we are like animals. Humans are like animals. Everyone's looking at me weirdly. Look at verse 19, okay? For how we're like animals. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. And so what is it telling us about how we're like animals? It's saying, animals die, so do we, okay? This is a true story, y'all, and I'm going to tell it. You're not going to believe this until, like, I'm just saying it's a true story. So, um, we have a lovely house. God has blessed us with a lovely house. There's so many good things about it, okay? Um, I think last week, it started from last week. I get up really early in the morning, the wee hours of the morning, and I like to just pray because it's super quiet. And every morning I woke up, I would hear something in our house, okay? And first, it started off with me seeing something just run across the living room. And I was like, what was that? I'm seeing things. I'm going crazy. Didn't take any notice of it, but it just kept happening where I would see something run across the living room and then disappear. I told my family, they kind of believed me, but to be honest, I think they, were, they just thought dad was going crazy, okay? And so I was speaking to a friend, Rex actually, because Rex was helping me move some stuff and I was telling him about this experience I'm having um, and he told me that it was a mouse. And I was like, no way, there's no mouse in my house. How dare a mouse tries to enter my house? He was like, it's probably a mouse. And I said, why? He said, yeah, there's just this pattern, okay? If, it, if the same thing keeps happening and it's fast and it moves quick, it's probably a mouse. I thought it was a lizard, okay? But whatever. 
And so, I'm not kidding you, on Friday, I woke up early hours of the morning. I went to my living room. I sat in my favorite chair, and I looked to my right, and there was a mouse, but the mouse was dead. Just <laughs> eyes open and everything. Sorry, if you're like into animals. I was like, ah! <laughs> I freaked out, woke the family up. I'm like, there's a dead mouse. What do I do in this situation? <laughs> oh, and then I said, Eleanor, you've got to get rid of it. And as Eleanor, was, <laughs> as Eleanor was getting rid of it, she was like, why don't you do this stuff? I said, I don't want to do it. <laughs> and you know, the kids are freaking out. Oh, the, the mouse is dead. <laughs> and I'm all boasting, saying, the mouse cannot survive in my house. I really was smiling a lot as I was preparing this sermon. And I'm reading about how, you know, man and beasts are the same. Why? Because they die just like each other and just like the mouse that was found dead in my house, just like every other animal we will die. And this inescapable reality is why the preacher says that we as humans have no advantage um, over animals, okay? And I know I don't have time to go through why we're different and how we're made in the image of God and animals aren't. Um, but for this specific purpose, what we're being reminded of this is that there is no difference in fate between humans and animals. Both share the same origin and the same final destiny. Look at verse 20. It says, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. And this verse should sound familiar to you, not because you've heard it in a Shakespeare play, or you've heard it in a song, or you've heard it at a funeral, but it should sound familiar to you because words like children of man, animals, and dust takes us back to the early chapters of Genesis. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 to 7 says this, okay? When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not cursed it, um, caused it to rain on the land, and there was no human to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and there was watering, and the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. What is that? There's a lot going on, but what's that predominantly telling us? It's telling us how God created human beings. And what did God do? He took... Um, 
He formed um, the man of dust from the ground and then God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and because of this man human beings became a living creature after this you guys know what happened right God provided man with Eve his wife okay and then what they did was they ended up doing what God told them not to do and so what happened after that is that sin entered into our world and began to decay and pollute everything and this is known as the fall Okay, and so what happens next is that most of chapter 3 of Genesis talks about the consequences of the fall. It talks about the curse in verse 3, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 19 says this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Sound familiar? It should, because Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is using the same language. Animals are living creatures, just like us. They've been given life and breath by God the Creator. But the life we have will one day expire. It does not last forever. We do not live forever. The day will come when you will breathe your last breath and begin the process of returning to dust. Napoleon Bonaparte says this, I die before my time and my body will be given back to the earth to become the food of worms, such as the fate which so soon awaits the great Napoleon. And so, by using the language of Genesis, this is what the preacher is reminding us of. He's reminding us of God's curse on mankind. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The effects of the fall was devastating to humanity. But this is what we have to remember when we're talking about death. Is that even though the fall was devastating to humanity and began to trigger death and disease and all those yucky things we don't want, it was all laced with grace. The promise of an offspring of the woman who would one day walk in the dust of this earth would be the one who would put death or bring death to an end. And that's what I want us to turn to next. Listen to this. So we've looked at justice through judgment. Humans die like animals. Now I want us to 
really consider the death of death. The subject and the certainty of death brings about so many questions. And one of the most common or popular questions you will hear when you're talking about death is this. If death is a certainty for humans and animals, what happens to us when we die? What happens beyond the grave? What happened, okay, and it was comical, but what happened to the mouse that was found dead on my living room carpet? What happened, what really happened to your friend or your loved one after they were lowered six feet into the ground? Do they become guardian angels? Do they become ghosts? Are they reincarnated? What happens beyond the grave? Our culture, rightly so, is obsessed with the afterlife. Okay, that's why many books on the topic of the afterlife become instant bestsellers. We're obsessed with the mystery of the afterlife. We want to know what happens beyond the grave, and we want to know what happens when we die. What will happen to your dog or cat or pet or all the animals in San Diego Zoo when they die. And the big question that relates mostly to us is, what will happen to people when they die? Do people go to heaven and animals become non-existent? These are big questions. And these are the big questions the preacher explores next. Even though the preacher was wise and possessed um, a wealth of knowledge, the interesting thing, when we get here and he brings up this whole topic of, I'm not sure whether um, you know, you know, humans go to heaven or um, animals cease to exist, the interesting thing is he doesn't have an answer. He cannot solve the Rubik's Cube of the afterlife. You don't believe me? Look at verse 21. He says, who knows? Who knows? Whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And this is one of the most common questions we ask. And he's asking it. And so what happens? He doesn't know. He's confused. And so as the preacher wrestles with these questions, he becomes frustrated because he just cannot figure out an answer. And so what does he do? 
This is what he does. He throws himself back into his work. Look at verse 22. He says, So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to what will be after him? So he's like, I cannot solve this Rubik's Cube of life after death and everything. So what am I going to do? I'm going to be more productive. And that's what some of us do, don't we? When we encounter life's challenges or we encounter a situation we cannot really understand we just get busy with work and we get busy with work in order to distract ourselves from what is difficult for us the preacher may be wise he may possess a wealth of knowledge but he does not have all the answers and this can be so frustrating because he brings up all of these difficult to understand questions and then leaves us with unsatisfactory answers as frustrating as this may be the good news for all of us is there is hope we can actually find legitimate answers to questions related to the afterlife it may not be found exclusively in the book of ecclesiastes but it can be discovered in other parts of the bible one of the early church fathers rightly said that by instructing us through enigmas ecclesiastes guides us to the other life the preacher may not know what happens to us when we die, but the truth is, and you saw this coming, Jesus absolutely does. Why does Jesus know what happens to us um, after we die? Because he's the only person in human history that has actually died and actually came back alive. All right, Jesus was betrayed by his disciples. Jesus was a victim of injustice when he was being unfairly tried by the religious leaders. He had no one to defend him when he was surrounded by Roman soldiers who were mocking him and verbally and physically abusing him. He had no one to fight with him and when he was nailed, on the wooden cross and left for dead, he was forsaken by God, his Father. And so after Jesus breathed his last, his body was taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb to return back to dust. But unlike every other human, Jesus does not stay dead. His body did not return to dust. Why? Because on the third day he rose again and Jesus' resurrection was the fulfillment of God's promise to reverse the curse of death because of the fall. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, Christ lives the trunk of the cross becomes the wood of life and now in the midst of the world on uh, of the accursed ground itself life is raised up anew in the center of the world from the wood of the cross the fountain of life springs up 
And because the fountain of life has sprung up again and lives forever, whoever drinks from the fountain of life lives forever. In other words, whoever believes in Jesus, whoever decides to stop living for themselves and start following Jesus and living for Jesus will be given the gift of eternal life and rise again to a better life. In the words of John Owen, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the death of death. In his book, why Everything Matters, Philip Riken tells the true story of a young Egyptian girl called Lana. She was raised in a devout Muslim home, and because of this, she was raised to despise Christianity. But one day, a friend invited her to listen to a radio program that proclaimed the gospel and when she heard the gospel, by God's grace, she was radically saved. Unfortunately, after she was saved, all help broke loose for her. Her father beat her. Her mother would no longer allow her to sit with her family at meals. Eventually, they declared that Lana was dead to them. But even after they threw her out of the house, they continued to persecute her. Her own family had her kidnapped and beaten until finally she was left broken and unconscious. This is hard to believe. This is really hard to believe. But after going through and enduring such extreme persecution Lana remained increasingly committed to Jesus Christ and so what kept her from despair what kept her from turning her back on Jesus because that would have been easy right my family hate me because of Jesus so therefore I am going to be done with Jesus and so what kept her, what, what helped her become more and more committed with Jesus, to Jesus? It was specifically the promise of life after death in Jesus. Listen to what she says. Listen to this, guys. She says, I'm in real danger, but I trust God because he is alive. My comfort is that it is only a short time I'm spending here on earth, but there will be a long time that I'll spend with him. We know there will come a time when there will be no more sorrows or suffering. This is our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, she says. These same truths by a young girl enduring extreme persecution is what has inspired and empowered 
so many of us to respond to be to find comfort in the most challenging time of our lives to find comfort when we are faced with the enemy, the great enemy of death. And the comfort we feel and our ability to be able to say in the face of death, this is hard, this sucks, but I have faith that God will work all things out for my good and his glory. The ability for us to be able to do that doesn't come from us, but it absolutely comes from God. Like, I'm telling you, okay, this week, okay, I, two weeks, in the last two weeks, I've known of people that have lost loved ones. And when I've spoken to them, I've been blown away by how they've, been res- how they've responded. I'm like, if I was in that situation, I'm locking myself up in a room and I'm not coming out and I'm going to be angry and everything like that. And I get it. That's appropriate. But their responses has been, look, this is hard. This sucks. But I trust God and I, and I have faith to believe that because they were saved, they are in a better place than all of those things. It's absolutely hard to deal with death. But the promise of new life and our relationship with God in Christ is that even in our hardest, most darkest, challenging situations, God gives us this incredible ability to still have faith and trust Him even in that. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done for you, may you have confidence that when you go down to the dust of death, you will rise in glory. May you have resurrection comfort in all of your sorrows. May you rejoice in whatever good work God has for you as you wait for the great day of judgment. And the reason why we can look forward to the great day of judgment is because of what Jesus Christ has done. If it wasn't for Jesus, gosh, we should be frightened and really scared and fearful of the day of judgment. But we look forward to the day of judgment when God will come and make everything right because we are his. And the reason why we are his is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And because of all of that, we have, we have hope. 
we have hope for the future. Let's pray. God help us. Help us. Our existence in this life under the sun exposes us to many sorrows, exposes us to injustice and oppression. Our existence in this life under the sun exposes us to the enemy and the devastation of death. But God, thank you that we we are not without hope. In Jesus Christ, we know for sure that death has no sting. This is hard. This is easy for us, most of us, to believe now. But God, I pray that we would have the same belief and the same hope whenever we experience some of the most challenging things in life. God, help us by your Spirit. Thanks for reminding us of all of these truths. But above all, thanks for reminding us that in Christ, death has been put to death. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, before we transition to standing and singing, um, what we like to do is give you an opportunity to really reflect on what we've talked about. And so in your own time, in your own seat, wherever you are, just reflect on what we've talked about. You know, you can pray, you can read the scripture, whatever you need to do. But let me encourage you, don't waste this time of reflection. And then when it's time, um, the team will ask you to stand and sing. And when you sing, man, sing. Sing these truths. Um, knowing that they are truths about God. They're not make-believes, but they are truths about who God is and what he's done for us. Enjoy. Thank you.